Hello, and welcome to a special Dream Lab series of the Price Lab podcast. I am very happy to be here with Jen Garcon, the Clear Bollinger Fellow in Public and Community Data Curation at the University of Pennsylvania Libraries. So Jen, I wanted to start out by just asking you what drew you to the material you cover in this course and what made you want to teach this course? So this course was really born out of the work that I've been doing for the last two plus years as the Clear Bollinger Fellow in Public and Community Data Curation at Penn, where I've been really working to develop partnerships and strategies that ensure equitable access to data and find ways to promote data advocacy. So I'm a historian of digital media and grassroots movements in the Caribbean, and so I've been long concerned with archival loss, having spent years in the archives trying to piece together radio broadcast recordings that detail state violence in Haiti, incidences that were not found in other traditional repository spaces. And so as a graduate student, I always fancied myself an archivist, an amateur archivist. But really what I was doing was leveraging the resources that were at my disposal to support the documentation of people in places like Haiti, where traditional repositories are under-resourced to begin with. And so as a library professional, one of the things that I've been trying to do and part of my reasoning for having a course like this is thinking about how specific skill sets related to data curation can help facilitate greater access to historical records of communities that are underdocumented in the historical record. And one way to do that, and I think at a place like Penn, the best way to do that is to find ways to alleviate costs and expertise barriers to preservation. And so many of my projects are thinking specifically about that, how to develop the tools and skill set and know-how to do that kind of work and how to make that broadly available and accessible to people who are interested in documenting and amplifying existing preservation work. So it's really thinking about how to plug knowledge gaps, which is something that I think both historians and archival professionals have in common. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about how, like, you know, in a perfect world, what students who would take this class would would come away knowing or, or learning or, or thinking about. There were intended to be a lot of takeaways from the class. Some of them really focused on developing technical skill sets, learning how to spin up a Jekyll site, learning how to develop metadata schema, how to clean data, how to develop CSVs. All of those are really deep technical skills. And I think that that's one of the ways that it fits really well into a Dream Lab framework. But a lot of the other takeaways were more so about navigating community-rooted projects in ways that really think about collaboration and how to foreground collaboration, how to develop equitable practices, how to leverage resources, and what it looks like to consider power and empathy as you're developing projects. I mean, the truth is most partnerships, particularly community partnerships with well-resourced institutions, will have a power imbalance and learning how to take stock and negotiate that imbalance in a way that does less harm 
was a huge takeaway that I was hoping to impart during the course. I know a little bit about Jekyll, but maybe some of the folks listening haven't encountered that before. So I'm wondering if you could tell us really briefly what it is and and why you wanted to use that uh, in this course. Jekyll is one of the static website generators that you can use. In this course, I was specifically thinking about using a platform called Wax, which uses Jekyll and is a minimal computing platform. And there are a lot of benefits to to using these kinds of systems, security being one of them. They're much harder to hack and in situations where you're potentially putting people's personal photographs and documents into a digital archive. You want to have some of the security that they won't be um, scraped and used for other potentially nefarious means. One of the really wonderful things about Wax in particular is that because it's a static site, a lot of the material is already migrated onto the site, so it doesn't have to pull from the internet as much to display and present items and documents. So it's really thinking about how people with limited bandwidth, particularly in places like the Global South, like thinking about how it would look to access the site on a phone rather than a computer per se. Or the way that I think about it is that it's really foregrounding how access and equity work together such that it doesn't need to continuously regenerate in the way that some other dynamic sites do. That was one of the reasons that I think Jekyll and Wax really work well for the way that I was envisioning the course. One way to think about your class, you know, is that, you know, on the one hand, you're learning some some technology, you're going to learn how to use some tools, you're going to get some digital skills. And at the same time, you'll be learning, you know, this sort of kind of philosophy, this ethics of engagement. But that that's actually maybe not a great way to think about it because the two are so intertwined. The philosophy and the ethics, you know, lead you to certain technologies. So I'm wondering if you can go into a little bit more about, you know, sort of the the ethics of community archiving. I think that question is particularly interesting, in part because the ethics of what I do and how I make choices isn't always explicit, I think, in having the conversation. It's more just like this broad underlying thread about what equity looks like, about what harm reduction looks like, about what my own kind of positionality as someone who is inevitably an outsider who is engaged in community-based work looks like. The way that I often talk about it is that I'm not creating these archives. These archives already exist. I'm not creating the efforts. They already exist. What they need is resources. What folks need are resources and the particular skill set to help make the projects that are already ongoing more sustainable. And those are skill sets that large institutions like Penn have and have access to, but there's not often this resource exchange or this like shared action framework that would allow them to work in a partnership that really is foregrounding equity. 
archives traditionally, I think, have been very kind of neo-colonialist in their positionality. It's really thinking about how can one institution take in and steward material. But as a result, you have these major dirts in archival material having to do with underrepresented groups because the relationships are not there. So what does it look like to develop those relationships, to advance stewardship processes, and to think through how one does that via leveraging resources and expertise rather than assuming control and stewardship over materials. And it's really focused on developing collaborations, building relationships, and thinking through what kind of processes we need to have in place in order to make material sustainable within the communities that they're currently held rather than thinking about how we can come into possession of those materials. Just wanted to ask you about some good examples of community archiving practice. Are there, you know, other people out there doing this or have you been doing, you know, any projects that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, there are a lot of really awesome examples out there that I can mention. I think the early parts of our work was really influenced by the work happening out of UNC, which has this archives in a backpack program where they quite literally create scanning kits, digitization kits, and give them to communities to start doing the work of creating digital surrogates, preserving in the long term, and having the conversation about preservation, but also about legacy planning. So thinking about what happens to family and community materials when a family member passes, or when someone who was traditionally tasked with documenting that family is no longer there. So I think that that's a lot of really wonderful kind of like forward thinking work about how to literally put resources in the hands of people that want to use them in terms of documentation. The work out of UCLA, I think is really great. They have this Global Voices project that's really taking a hemispheric approach. So it's thinking about how to support smaller repositories and institutions in the global South in documenting and scanning their own materials. And given climate change and other kind of ecological disasters, places like the Caribbean, this would be invaluable, right? Like you're in situations often doing research in the Caribbean where you're fully aware that the repository that you're at doesn't have climate control necessarily to support, to make stable a lot of the materials. In, in the case of Haiti, a lot of the archivists hadn't been paid in years at that point. So like their own livelihood is really, is really precarious, but they're still there doing the work. So how do you support that kind of endeavor? And at UCLA, what they're doing is providing large grants, getting materials di- digitized and ingesting the digital surrogates into their digital archive, which is then accessible broadly which I think is a fantastic way to make the material accessible and like really think about preservation. DocNow is doing really wonderful community-based work and it's really focused on grassroots movements. It was really influenced by the Black Lives Matter movement. So it's thinking 
about born digital material in a way that's really interesting. So like how do you document community activities on platforms like Twitter or Facebook? And I think as we as those platforms become more ingrained and really register a lot of contemporary materials that will ultimately be a part of the historical record, figuring out how to document those now, I think, is really important work. In terms of my own work, we've been working in Philadelphia specifically to highlight some preservation and community archiving work. There's a partnership that we have with the Free Library of Philadelphia to do digitization workshops at the West Philadelphia Blackwall Regional Branch. And so that's been ongoing since October 2019. And it's a monthly event, incredibly well attended, and it's enabled us to create a workflow that moves digital surrogates from digitization into a digital archive and about five hours. That would have been what I taught um, <laughs> at the Dream Lab. But it's really thinking about how do you move through the processes quickly to make a, a viable digital archive of community materials that community folks can access and use as they will. And then this summer, if not for COVID-19, we were going to have this larger preservation expo in partnership with the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, where there would be consultations from professional conservators and archivists of community materials. There would be expos so that we got to kind of raise the visibility of smaller cultural heritage institutions in Philadelphia, like the Black Writers Museum, like the Colored Girls Museum, to talk about kind of on a really community, regional level, what we were doing to document Black histories and Black people's lived experiences. I think one of the things that I hadn't said that I probably would say in the course is to really take yourself out of the equation in some ways to really allow community folks to lead the process of how they want things to look and how they want the partnership to to advance in part because I think in in all situations in all partnerships both people want something out of it and It's more important that everyone walks away from the partnership feeling an equal part of the process and the outcome than for the project to get done and the relationship not to advance or to stall as a result. Taking stock also of where you are regularly in the process and that you're continuing to live up to your intentions even as things get really great (laughs) and someone's like, oh, that wonderful collection that you digitize, I no longer want it on your site. And you're like, damn it. But okay, (laughs) you have a right to do that. And that's totally cool. And we'll figure it out from there. I think that's such a huge part of all this. The technology is actually the easy part. It's getting the relationships right can be really tricky. The idea that You just kind of show up and start doing the work. And I will admittedly say that I thought that it was going to be like that too when I first started. 
that I had these like ideas and I had the resources. And honestly, I was coming to the table with like, you know, scanners and, you know, with platforms and folks were like, I don't understand why I would want to be on this thing. (laughs) Like, you know what, that's fair. Because I haven't done the work of proving that it is viable outside of my own means, you know, like, I think that preservation is important for these reasons. But my approach had started off as a researcher's approach. In 50 years, don't you want someone to be able to know this about you and about, you know, your lived experience and, you know, controlling your own narrative? And that's the way that I was coming upon it. But folks are honestly more interested in having a conversation about what's happening now. And one of the ways to come upon it, I think, is to get people thinking about what their own family composition will look like, how the changes in their own neighborhoods are being reflected and potentially not remembered. Thinking about places that are rapidly gentrifying, for instance, I grew up in Brooklyn, and Brooklyn looks entirely different from when I lived there and grew up there. You know, my block itself is basically unrecognizable to me. But all of the spaces on that block, from the oak tree to the corner store, are embedded with memories for me. And so how do I... How do I translate that? How do I make sure that that lives on in some way so that whether researchers care or not, I can say to my kids, yeah, that's where, you know, your grandma and I used to like hang out on like really warm summer days. And that's important. Figuring out the why can be really helpful in trying to bridge the conversation between what you're doing and how you're doing it. This episode of the Dream Lab podcast is edited by Alexis Messino. This special Dream Lab series of the Price Lab podcast was produced by Sarah Malinsky, program manager of the Price Lab. We also want to thank Julie Beth Napolin and Clay Coleman for their expert advice, as well as all the Dream Lab instructors who were so generous with their time. This podcast was made possible with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation.